If you have a Bible, open it up with me to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3. If you were here with us last week, we, we read this passage, and I told you last week I've got three points, but due to time constraints, we're probably only going to hit two of them, and I was right. Um, we're going to get into point three today, but you're lucky point three's got three sub points, so... <laughs> It's really, a, I think in total it would have been like an 11-point sermon, but now it's really just a three-point sermon. So uh, we, we started this a couple of weeks ago, looking at this particular passage and, and really kind of this section of, uh, of the letter to the church at Ephesus. If you're new or you're, you're visiting this morning, welcome. We've, we've been in this book now since back in the fall. And we've said throughout the series that uh, Ephesians is a fascinating letter written to the church because it was written by the Apostle Paul who is in prison back to the church in Ephesus, a church that he had founded or started, a church that kind of came about because of revival in, in, in a really interesting city in the ancient world, uh, a city that kind of existed in the shadow of a, of a foreign pagan god, the, the Greek goddess Diana or, or um, uh, Artemis. And, and, and so there was, uh, there was pagan and occult practices. It was a city that had uh, a, a bit of a, a well-to-do sensibility about it because they made money there. And we saw in the book of Acts that this church began amidst a whole lot of turmoil. God not only began to save the Jews, but he was also saving the Gentiles. And so what happened as a result of that is really the heartbeat behind the letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul is now in prison writing back to a church that has continued to grow with people from really all over the world. And now Paul is writing a letter to explain to this church, this is what happened when you trusted Jesus by faith. This is what it means to, to be a follower of Christ. This is, what it, this is what God did when he saved you and reconciled you to himself. And so Paul kind of pulls back the cosmic curtain a little bit and says, here's what God was up to in, in redeeming you. And most notably, what he draws attention to is that in, in the work of salvation, in the work of Jesus dying in our place for our sins, God is building a church made up of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And we're being built together in Christ. And the good news of the gospel is, it's not because of anything we've done. Paul says it's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then chapter 3 opens up where Paul says, so let me answer the anticipated objection for those of you who may be hearing this good news gospel presentation for the first time or uh, as a believer hearing what it means to follow Jesus. He says essentially, hey, listen, uh, you're probably going to say, well, why, if this is so good, why are you in prison, Paul? And Paul begins to unveil for us the mystery of God's grace in light of the mystery of suffering. We saw that in the first 13 verses where Paul talks about this is what God has done. He saved both Jew and Gentile. And, uh, the mystery of his grace has been revealed to us so that we won't lose heart when we suffer, when we encounter trials, when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter things that feel like they're going to take us down. And from there, we saw last week, verse 14, Paul launches immediately into prayer, praying for those people. I don't want you to lose heart. I want you to endure. I want you to persevere. I don't want you to give up. And he prays a very specific prayer that we examined last week. The prayer I said that I think could best be titled, How to Not Lose Heart. Or how do you pray your way through the mystery of, of suffering when you encounter it in light of the, 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 the mystery of God's grace which has been revealed to you. 
So let's look back at that prayer this morning. I'm going to go back and hit the real quick the, the points that we made at the beginning about this. This is sort of what's happening here, and then we'll really anchor down on what would have been point three this week, but it's point one this week. Uh, Ephesians chapter three, beginning in verse fourteen. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. A little over a year ago, something really weird started happening on my phone. Uh, the first time it happened, it was at like two o'clock in the morning. I was asleep in bed. I, I used my phone to, to make like white noise. And so uh, it's always got noise coming out of it. So I sleep better. Uh, but if that ever stops, that noise stops, it wakes me up. And so it stopped one night about two o'clock in the morning. And I realized I was getting a phone call. Uh, no one who I would call friend would call me at two o'clock in the morning. So I roll over, glance at my phone. I see that it's coming from an, an Austin, Texas area code, which I'm immediately like, of course, this is an Austinite. This is a Texan. This is what they do. But put my phone back down, go back to sleep. Thought, okay, it's weird that I'm getting a spam call at 2 a.m., but robocalls these days, am I right? And so I wake up in the morning and I noticed that the person had left me a voice message. And so I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And so I listen, and it's a guy, and he just says, hey, just checking to make sure you made it home okay tonight. I'll, 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 I'll touch base with you later or something like that. And I was like, well, hopefully they made it home okay because it wasn't me. You know, I've been where I was all night. And so a couple days go by, and then I, I get a text message again from, from a different number, same area code, same Austin area area code. I wake up in the morning, and I roll over and glance at my phone, as I often do, and I look at my phone, and the text message says, good morning, beautiful. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I know Austinites tend to be delusional. They cheer for a particular fan t football team, after all, but I know you're not talking to me, right? So I'm like... This is weird. And so I continued getting some texts from that number throughout the day or throughout the week that was just like, hey, and I kept ignoring them. Finally, I was like, hey, man, I think you got the wrong number. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Fast forward a few more days. I'm sitting on the couch watching TV with my kids and my phone buzzes and I look down. And I get a text message, another Austin area code. But this one says, hey, this is Nick the Ginger, the guy you gave your phone number to last night. Are you at work? And then the light bulb went off. There is some attractive woman in the greater Austin area <laughs> that when she's asked by a dude if, if, she can, if he can have her phone number, she gives him my phone number. It's a true story. And so I'm like, Nick the Ginger? And so I read it and my... My daughters are sitting there, now 18, soon to be 16, and, um, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And they're like, what, Dad? And I'm like, I keep getting these 
text messages from random guys. And I think it's because there's some lady giving out my number and my oldest leans in and she goes, answer it. <laughs> and I was like, you think I should? And she's like, yeah, let's see what happens. And I'm like, okay, let's have fun. And so I'm like, absolutely, I'm at work. You coming to see me? And immediately the little bubble pops up and it's like on my way. And so then I immediately feel like conviction. I'm like, oh no, I'm supposed to be a representative of Jesus Christ, my Lord, and here I am. But then I'm like, wait a second, this guy got this gal's number, some, I believe, shady place. Um, he gets what he deserves, you know? <laughs> it's amazing how my self-righteousness kicks in. So we have a little bit of fun. I'm not going to go into details. We have some conversation until finally I let him down because he's like, Hey, they said that you're not working tonight. When I guess he got there. And he's like, uh, are you still coming in? I'll give you a little more details. Because <laughs> it was a lot of fun with my girls to do this. I said, sure, yeah. Uh, he said, do you want me to get you something to eat? To which I was like, sure. To which he says, Tyler behind the bar says he's not going to put the order in until you show up. Which leads me to believe Tyler knows this guy has no chance with this girl. And he's not going to make the kitchen cook something because he knows that this whole thing cannot be real. <laughs> now, I want to tell you that. One, because I needed to confess sin publicly. I probably should not have lied to that guy. But Two, uh, every one of these guys were reaching out to, these, to this woman, whoever she is, on faith. They believed she was who she said she was, and she would do whatever it is she said she would do. They believe that, of course, a woman who looks like this would give her number to a guy that looks like me. And I think all of them are way wrong. That faith had some conviction that followed it. That, that if I'm going to believe this to be true about this person, then I'm going to act in this particular way. And that's the way faith tends to work. If we really believe what we say we believe, it, it results ultimately in some sort of action. Some sort of risk-taking, some sort of, hey, I'm putting myself out there because I believe this is actually happening. I believe this is actually true. And when we start to examine this unbelievably rich prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for a church that, that is facing the, the threat of persecution, and even probably greater, the threat of fragmentation, because they come from such wildly diverse backgrounds and belief systems, Paul prays this prayer in faith because he believes, he really believes in his heart of hearts, is convicted to the core that God is who he says he is. This, this prayer is, is a prayer that, that erupts out of a deep-seated faith in the goodness and character and nature of God himself. And so that's what I want to press in on this morning. Last week, we uh, talked about these first two points that we need to kind of circle back on in order to make sense of this third point. The first thing that we see that Paul does here is he assumes a particular posture because of the, the way he prays. Because of what he believes to be true about God, it causes him, I think, to, to evaluate his self in light of who God is, which leads him to bow. Paul says, for this reason, I bow before our Father. And so that posture we talked about is kind of really made up of two components. It's both submission or surrender and it's trust. 
that when we bow before God, we're submitting or surrendering to his will and to, to who he is, to his authority, to his sovereignty. And, and it's also a sign of trust. God, I believe that you have my best intentions in mind. And it's interesting that amidst suffering and amidst, amidst uncertainty and, 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 and difficult circumstances, the thing that Paul models for us is the first act that we take in those sets of circumstances is to get low, to to lay before the Lord, to come under that authority, un under his power, under his sovereignty, and to begin to trust that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he will do. And then Paul erupts in a prayer filled with all kinds of hope. So really, the three hopes that we sort of drew out that Paul talks about here is, is first off, the hope of the presence of Christ. He says, I pray that you would be strengthened, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, that you would know the presence of Jesus so that when you pray, especially in a season of suffering, and when you pray, when you're uncertain or overwhelmed or anxious, what Paul says you pray is that you pray to experience the presence of Christ. We talked about it last week. It's utterly amazing that Paul says this from a prison cell. We got to know that the sustaining force in his life that's upholding him and enabling him to endure and persevere is the very indwelling spirit of Christ himself. And then Paul says, not only do I want you to have the presence of Christ, I want you to experience the power of Christ. I don't want it to just be something you've read about or that you think about or that you learn, but something that actually comes to rest on your person, that, that the power of the Holy Spirit would fill you, Paul says. And if we're going to endure suffering, we're going to have to have power that comes from on high. We don't have in, our, in ourselves the ability, the, the strength to endure. We need a strength that comes from above. And then lastly, and maybe perhaps most amazingly in this prayer, Paul says, I want you to know the unknowable love of God. And not just have, a, again, a, a working head knowledge of it. I want you to experience it in all of its fullness, its height, its width, its depth, its breadth. I want you to know the love of God that is really ultimately unknowable, to have this sort of experience. Now, that, that's the way that Paul models prayer for those who are facing the potential of losing heart amidst anxiety or suffering. And I just want to say this morning, much like randos that are hitting up my phone because some lady gave them their number, he's doing that because he believes certain things to be true, namely about the character and nature of God. He believes that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And if you look at the bookends of this prayer, both how he opens it and how he closes it, all of those hopes and the posture that Paul assumes rests on the character and nature of God as he identifies him here. So I want to show you three things about God's person, about his character and nature that, that are, become the basis of a prayer that, that leads you to endure, leads you to persevere amidst suffering, amidst anxiety, amidst those moments when you feel like giving up or maybe overwhelmed. What is the basis? What is the foundation of a prayer life that then prays through that so that you don't lose heart? Well, the first one should be the most obvious one. Paul begins with this uh, announcement about who it is that he's praying to. He says, for this reason, in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. The Father. So, so Paul's prayer is, is rooted and grounded in this particular characteristic about who God is and how God operates. Namely, that he acts like a dad. So the basis for Paul's robust prayer of perseverance is simply the fatherhood of God. 
What does it mean this morning that God is our Father? Now, this can be, that can be a hard question for some of y'all, simply because if, if you're like me and you had a maybe tumultuous or fractured relationship with your earthly father, it can be hard sometimes to hear God address this father and immediately not get in some sort of state where you're anxious about that. Like, oh, I didn't really care for my dad or me and my dad had a lot of friction and we did not get along. And so I don't know if I can call God father and not bring that baggage into the relationship. So, so we, when we talk about the fatherhood of God, I want to talk about it in the, the terms and the ways that, that God himself talks about it in the Bible. In fact, this morning, I would want to draw attention to, man, if there's ever a place, and just think with me for a second, where Jesus talks or gives some sort of imagery or vision about the fatherhood of God, how would he explain what does it mean for God to be our father? Now, you could probably think of a number of ways that God talks about the Father. Often he's talking about his heavenly Father whenever he does. But multiple times in the Gospels, he tells stories where some of the main characters or some of the main players are sons and fathers. And there's one really famous one that immediately jumps to mind for me in Luke chapter 15. In the parable of the prodigal son, where there Jesus explains what the Father is like. He's speaking to, as Luke tells us, whenever that, that chapter opens up, uh, sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and teachers of the law. So he's got these two groups in front of him, uh, one that is kind of on the outskirts or on the margins. They're, they're thought to be the riffraff of society. And then those who are kind of highfalutin, connected and networked in society. And he's explaining to those two groups what God is like by telling a story. And he says, suppose a father had two sons. So he opens it up. Let me tell you about a dad who's got two groups like these represented as sons. And he goes in, many of you know the story, where the first, the younger son comes to the father, says, man, I wish you were dead. Liquidate your assets. Give me my inheritance. The, the younger son goes and takes those funds and squanders them in, in reckless living, the text says. And when he's eating the pods of pigs and he's in the pig sty, he comes to his senses and develops a, devises a plan where at least he can go back and live on his father's estate as a hired servant if he'll just come back and say, this is the way I want you to treat me moving forward. But as Jesus tells the story, it says, while the son was still a far way off, the father saw him and ran to him and kissed him and embraced him and said, my, my son who was dead is now alive. And he kills the fattened calf for him. And he puts the robe back on him and a ring back on him, signifying that he's inherited once again what he had lost already. When Jesus tells a story about a God that, that is represented as a father, he says he's pretty extravagant. This is a God who kisses his son, who runs to him. Scandalous behavior in the ancient world. I love Charles Spurgeon, uh, the, the great British preacher, preached a sermon on just as he was so prone to do, an entire sermon on like three words. The three words was from that story, and he kissed him. And he said, think about this. When Jesus gets an opportunity to explain what God is like to us, he says, here's a story about a guy who's utterly filthy to his core, who has done everything that, that he could do to alienate his dad. And yet when his dad catches but a glimpse of him, he can't stop showing him affection. So I think about fatherhood myself like that. I think about myself as a dad. What are the aspects of fatherhood that I think are important that Paul may be articulating here when he says, for this reason, we bow to our father. As a dad, I think there are just a few things that it means to, to, to want to be the best dad that I can. One of them is I, I provide for my kids. 
I provide for them. I yearn for them. I, I long to be with them. I desire to be around them. I enjoy their presence. And ultimately, I delight in them. Spent the last, I don't know, a couple of days at the lacrosse fields watching my girls play lacrosse. I know almost nothing about lacrosse. And I've been watching them play for almost two years now. I still don't know what's going on. They blow the whistle, and I'm like, I don't know what happened. But when they do anything remotely close to good or what I think is good, I'm like, yes, they're doing good, I think. (laughs) Because that's what it means to be a dad. I delight in my kids. I yearn for them. I long for them. I want to be with them. Now, if you take that frame of mind and you see how in the world can Paul exist in what is most likely like solitary confinement in in one of the the worst prison conditions we know from world history, probably chained up in a hole somewhere and it's cold and he's vulnerable and he's probably hungry and he's all alone. How can he pray a prayer like this? That's what he believes God feels about him. At his heart of hearts, at the core of his being, he would say, God is providing for me. We know that because he writes the letter to the church in Philippi as well around this time. And he says, look, I could have died in here, but you guys were used by God. God sustained me through your gifts. God provides for me, he says. We know that he knows that God delights in him. We know that he knows that God, God yearns for him. Also, why he, while he's in prison, he writes a letter to Timothy and he says, everyone abandoned me at my trial but God stood with me. He didn't leave me. Jesus himself was present with me. So even in the the face of loneliness, in the face of poverty, in the face of pain, in in the face of really challenging sufferings and trials, Paul says, for this reason, I bow before my father, the one who longs to be with me. And when we talk about how is it that you endure, how is it that you don't lose heart, how do you pray in such a way so that you make it you got to believe at your heart of hearts. Hold the conviction by faith that God is, in fact, your heavenly Father. That he longs for you. That he desires you. That he yearns to be with you. That he will, in fact, provide for you. That's the only way you're going to make it. Now, there's one other thing that Paul says here. That if you're if I, hadn't pre- if I hadn't spent two weeks basically reading these same seven verses over and over and over again, it may not have jumped off the page the way that it did to me this week. But, but, but Paul follows up that God is our Father with a really interesting statement in verse 16. One that I would argue and contend you could take completely out of this prayer, and for the most part, nothing else changes. So, so look in verse 14. Look what Paul says there. For this reason, I bow my knees... Before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Now, you could take verse 15 completely out of the prayer, and really not a whole lot, if anything, changes. So that statement that God is not just my father, but he's the father of all the ethnicities, as the text literally says, or the, the nations, is, it's not a throwaway. Paul's doing something here by putting that addendum on God's fatherhood that I think is really important for us, especially as we face sufferings and difficulties. In other words, Paul could have made this prayer completely private. It could have been about his private, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. 
in order that according to, to his, his glory, you may be strengthened. He doesn't have to say anything about him being the father of all the nations, unless even in praying, Paul is modeling something in this larger project for us, namely that we are being built together and our relationship with one another comes into our private prayer life. Our relationship with the nations comes into our private prayer life. Now, I, you may say, give that to reach. I don't know what else to do with that addendum on there. In, in Greek, he says, our uh, Petra, Petera, uh, and, and, and Petria, uh, the father who is the father of many nations. It's a wordplay that's essentially saying, I'm telling you something very intentional here. I believe it's, 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 it's indicative of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to make an offering at the altar and there are reminded that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your offering at the altar. Go and be reconciled. It's, it's what I believe Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about the suffering that he faces there. And he says, I'm going through this for y'all. There, there's a, there's, there's a, a community of faith that is in mind when we suffer. There's an example that is being set. And God is not just in the business of reconciling us to himself, but also to one another. And I bring that up as an important point today because I believe that the fatherhood of God also reconciles us. It doesn't just mean that God is our father who yearns for us, delights in us, provides for us. It also means that God is our father, that, that, that he has something in mind for us. And not just us in a particular context where we're all kind of the same for the nations. That comes flooding into Paul's prayer here. Why do I bring that up? Uh, one, I, I think we got to do business with that, that, that statement. Why in the world would Paul say, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, if this is just about strengthening our private relationship with God? I, I, I think this morning I could probably ask some of y'all. This is a room this size. Many folks here would say, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus. I follow him. I would say, okay, let's think about the things that Paul has prayed for. He's prayed for you to know, the, know and experience the presence of Christ. How's that going in your life? Is is there an ever-increasing awareness of Jesus' presence in you and with you? Uh, Paul's praying for you to experience the power of Christ in your life. Are, are you experiencing that? Is that a normative feature of your walk with him? Paul's praying that you would know the unknowable love of Jesus Christ in your life. Is that something that you would say, man, in an ever-increasing fashion that's, that's coming to the forefront for me? If in any of those ways you would hear any of those things and say, yeah, I don't know, not really. Then my follow-up would be, based on this little addendum that Paul gives us here about the nations, are you, do you care about that? Are you, are you pursuing that? Do you consider that? Do you know that, based on what Paul says here about Jesus, about, about God being the father of all, of all the nations, do, do you know that you have more in common with a Christian in India or Iraq than you do with someone who lives on your street who doesn't know Jesus, but may share every other affinity that you have. They may love Mexican food. They may vote the same way you do. They may cheer for the same teams. You may think, man, I am eye to eye with this guy or this gal. You have more in common, based on what Paul says here, with those of the faith amongst the nations, and even with those that fly under the same banners that you hold. I, th I think that that's important for us to understand what it means that God is our Father. I think it places us in the broader context of faith amongst the nations, of what it means to make disciples of all nations, of what it means that whenever Jesus pulls back the curtain in Revelation and says, this is where we're all headed, y'all, at the throne room of heaven is present every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. 
There's something about God's fatherhood that we're meant to experience when we pray under that banner or, or under that authority. Guys, I'm, I'm just realizing we may only get one point in this week. I'll go quick. The second thing that Paul addresses is the glory of God. He's showing us that when we pray in a particular way to draw attention to who God is, we, we pray to, to a God who is full of glory. He says there, we pray to the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then down at the end, that you may be filled with all the fullness or all the weight of God. Paul says that whenever you pray in this way, that the glory of God is something you're meant to experience. Paul's basing his prayer on the fact that God is glorious, that he's filled with authority and that he's filled with much weight, that his person, his character, and his nature changes the way we see everything. That the glory of God is meant to give us perspective, y'all. It's meant to set things in proper focus, the way they were meant to be set, for us to consider who God is and what we're up against in light of what claims God makes about himself. I love it. When Tim Keller preached on this passage many, many years ago, he brought this to, a, to, to, to my attention, and I heard it. He said, Paul prays that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That means not to simply know and believe the glory and greatness of God is within you, but to actually be overwhelmed and filled with the glory of God. To have an experience of the glory of God means you experience that God is infinitely more important to you than you had previously thought, and everything else, by comparison, looks very light. There's an old hymn that ends like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To have an experience of the weightiness of the glory of God means that the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Paul prays that on the basis of the riches of the glory of God, you would have this sort of experience, I think so, that when you do suffer, you would realize that this world is but a blip on the radar of eternity. And everything around you that you aspire to, all your ambitions in light of knowing God and being found in him, it's, it's paltry, it's small, it's insignificant. A person who has become familiar with the glory of God has immense courage. They can face all sorts of things because when you experience the glory of God, it creates in you absolute, total, and complete courage. You don't want anything else. Everything else is small, it's minuscule. That's why Paul would say in light of, of knowing the sufferings of Christ, that I could be found in him, experience a death like his, so that I may also experience a resurrection like his. There's resurrection life on offer for you. That's why when you suffer, you can face it the way Paul does. The glory of God is available to me in this. I'm not going at it alone. So I just want to close this morning by simply asking this question then. To what extent do you believe these things? That's where the rubber meets the road. I, I've said multiple times throughout this series, Paul's teaching us that every battle that we fight is ultimately a battle of faith. Are you convinced that God is like this? That he is your father? I mean, the, the cross of Christ shows you that he delights in you. He, 
How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called sons and daughters. And we know this love because Christ laid down his life for us. Do you believe that he yearns for you? Do you you believe that he longs to be with you? Do you believe that you can experience him as you suffer in ways that would bring about glory in your life that would make all the things of this world dissipate and seem so infinitely insignificant? Because they are. My hope and my prayer for you this morning, if 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 you're a professing follower of Jesus, my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that you would be intimately aware of God's fatherhood towards you. That you would maybe even feel the conviction of the need for reconciliation or considering the nations amidst that. So last week, I had to bury or do a funeral service for my friend Andy Hines. Andy was a member here at Living Hope, a dear brother. Uh, Andy lost a battle with cancer just this last week, and we had his memorial service on, on Tuesday night. And one of the things that happened, many of the guys that spoke, spoke because they'd worked with Andy in a mission-sending agency, where Andy had spent many years of his life going to the nations to teach and to train the church about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this is in places like Sudan and Indonesia and Nigeria, like really hard places. And as he, that, those guys talked about that, I had this passage in mind, like, And he was so convinced in the fatherhood of God that God loved him and loved the nations that he was like, that's what I want. I want to sit on the front row of that. I'm going to go and experience that. I'm going to look across the table into the eyes of someone who doesn't even speak my language and experience the fatherhood of God in our midst. And as he suffered, and he suffered mightily, he suffered with great faith because I think he had tasted that. That's what I long for you. That's what I long for myself, to have that sort of faith, to endure till the end, to persevere, to not lose heart, because this is who our God is. So, Father, this morning, would you provoke our our spirit to, to lay hold of these truths, to by faith be captured again by Christ, to see his goodness towards us, that it never fails and it never ends, and would the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, for for those here this morning who who don't really know or understand what it means to call you Father, I would just ask that this morning your spirit would provoke them, that that faith would be ignited, that they would trust you, they'd follow you, they would see whatever suffering or trial they're up against, you will not abandon nor forsake them, you'll be with them till the end. And to that end, Lord Jesus, would you reign in our hearts and lives today, in your name we pray, amen.